0: Thank you for joining, and welcome to this virtual board meeting of the National Transportation Safety Board. I'm Robert Sumwalt, and I'm honored to serve as the chairman of the NTSB. And joining us today are my colleagues on the board, Vice Chairman Bruce Landsberg, Member Jennifer Homedy, Member Michael Graham, and Member Tom Chapman. Today, we meet in open session, as required by the government in the Sunshine Act, to consider the capsizing and sinking of the commercial vessel, commercial fishing vessel, Scandies Rose, near Sudwick Island, Alaska, on December the 31st, 2019. Of the seven crew members aboard, two escaped the vessel and were rescued by the Coast Guard. But tragically, tragically the five remaining crew members, and including the vessel's captain, were never found. On behalf of all of us at the NTSB, I'd like to offer our sincerest condolences to the family and friends of all of those who were lost in this tragic accident. Our purpose in this investigation is to learn from it, to prevent it from happening again so that others don't have to go through what you're going through. Year after year, one of the deadliest ways to make a living in the U.S. is to be a commercial fisherman. More than 800 people have lost their lives aboard fishing vessels in the past two decades, and the safety of commercial fishing vessels is on our current list, most wanted list, of transportation safety improvements alongside safety of passenger vessels. But unlike passenger vessels, however— Fishing vessels, such as the Scandies Rose, carry only their crew, who are assumed to know the risk. There are many seasoned mariners who take on those risks to make their living as fishermen. But as tragedies like this one, there's our team's system there, but as tragedies like this one we will discuss today remind us, that this deadly occupation does not have to be so deadly, and that the risk that fishermen accept should only be mitigated. Commercial fishing vessels like the Scandies Rose encounter rough weather routinely, and commercial fishing is a year-round business. Off the coast of Alaska in the winter, icing is an all-too-common hazard. In fact, the Scandes Rose carried on board tools to break up ice that accumulated on its deck and structures. This is not an unusual arrangement. In the waters off of Alaska, in the winter, the question is not whether icing is possible. The question is how much icing can be tolerated while still maintaining a margin of safety around the vessel's stability. Today, we will discuss what icing conditions prevailed during what part of the voyage. And we'll discuss what, if anything, the captain and the crew could have done differently to avoid the tragic outcome. And tragically and critically, we will discuss whether they had or could have had the information needed to make the right call. Specifically, how icing might affect vessel stability in various loading conditions. Now, each board member has studied the draft report and each of us have met individually with the investigative staff, but today's board meeting is the first time that we, as a deliberative body, will have gathered to discuss the report. Today, the staff will lay out the pertinent facts and analysis found in the draft report and they will present The draft findings, a probable cause and recommendations to the board, and then we on the board will question the staff to ensure the report as we adopt it today truly provides the best opportunity to enhance safety. The public docket for this investigation contains more than 4,500 pages of additional relevant material, and it's available on our website, ntsb.gov. The final report will also be available on our website in just a few weeks once any amendments voted upon today are incorporated in the Mm -hmm. report, and Mm -hmm. the report is finalized. At this time, I'd like for each of my colleagues on the board to introduce
1: themselves. Vice Chairman Landsberg. Good morning, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, our deliberations. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you very much.
0: Member Homendy.
2: Good morning, Mr. Chairman, and to my colleagues. Uh, and thank you very much to the staff. Look forward to the discussion.
3: Great, thank you. Good morning, Member Homedy. Member Graham. Good morning, Mr. Chairman, Vice Chairman, uh, fellow board members, and investigative staff. I look forward to our deliberations today. Great. Mike, good to see you. And Member Chapman.
4: Good morning, Mr. Chairman. Looking forward to the discussion today, and uh, congratulations to our team for an outstanding investigation. Thank
0: you very much. I'll now ask the Deputy Managing Director for Investigations, Brian Curtis, to introduce the investigative staff and those who will be participating in this morning's board meeting. Good morning, Mr.
5: Curtis. Good morning, and thank you, Chairman Sumwalt. I'd like to also thank everyone who helped make this virtual board meeting happen today. My only administrative announcement this morning is a reminder for the meeting participants to silence all electronic devices at this time. I'll now introduce the staff for today's meeting. Unless otherwise indicated, staff is from the Office of Marine Safety. Morgan Terrell, the Director for the Office of Marine Safety, Bart Barnum, investigator in charge, Paul Suffern, Meteorology Group Chairman from the Office of Aviation Safety, Julie Payanin, Report Writer, Scott Rainey, Safety Recommendations from the Office of Safety Recommendations and Communications, Casey Blaine, Deputy General Counsel for the NTSB. Darlene Hatchett, Director for the Office of Safety Recommendations and Communications. Barbara Check, Deputy Director for the Office of Research and Engineering. Dana Schultz, Director for the Office of Aviation Safety. Liam LaRue, Chief of Investigations. Rob Jones, Deputy Chief of Investigations. And Eric Stolzenberg, Chief of Product Development. The presentations will begin with an investigation overview by the investigator in charge, Bart Barnum. Mr. Barnum.
6: Thank you. Good morning, Chairman Sumwalt, Vice Chairman Landsberg, and board members. I'll be providing an overview of the events that took place on December 31st and January 1st, 2019. I would like to acknowledge the staff noted here For their support during the investigation and the report development. I would like to also acknowledge the staff noted here who produced this virtual board meeting. The Coast Guard parties to this investigation are listed here, and we would like to thank them for their assistance on scene and throughout the investigation. The Coast Guard was the lead federal agency in this investigation. Following the accident, the Coast Guard convened a Marine Board of Investigation. NTSB investigators coordinated with Coast Guard investigators to avoid duplicating efforts. From February 22nd to March 5, 2021, the Coast Guard conducted a formal hearing into the accident. During the hearing, Coast Guard and NTSB investigators questioned 43 individuals, including surviving crew members, company management, Coast Guard personnel, and commercial fishing industry stakeholders. The Scandies Rose was a steel fishing vessel built in 1978 and registered in Dutch Harbor, Alaska. The vessel fished in the Bering Sea for king crag, opelio crab, and Pacific cod. In the summer months, the vessel would store and transport the catch for the salmon fishery vessels in the Bering Sea, in Gulf of Alaska. The Scandi's Rose was subject to the regulations set forth in 46 Code of Federal Regulations, Part 28, which included equipment, stability, and other safety requirements. The vessel was required to participate in the Coast Guard's commercial fishing vessel dockside safety examination program, which primarily focused on life-saving equipment on board the vessel. The vessel was owned by the Scandies Rose Fishing Company, based in Bremerton, Washington, and was the company's sole vessel. The captain of the vessel had 45 years of fishing experience, with about 40 years as captain on various fishing vessels in the Gulf of Alaska and Bering Sea. As captain of the vessel, he made determinations on when and where to fish. The vessel layout consisted of the following: below the main deck starting at the bow was a ballast tank followed by an anchor chain locker and a dry store room. Next aft were three crab tanks, floodable holds used to store the catch. Outboard and below of the crab tanks and not pictured here were the vessel's fuel oil storage tanks. Aft of these tanks were the vessel's engine room, machinery space, and steering gear room housing the vessel's propulsion equipment and other machinery associated with the operation of the vessel. Midships on the main deck was the fishing deck, where the crew would stack the vessel's crab pots while not being fished. Collectively, the pots on deck were referred to as a pot stack. Further aft was the deckhouse, consisting of three levels. Two days before the accident, the captain and crew prepared the vessel for departure from Kodiak, Alaska to participate in the Bering Sea pot Cod fishery, which was scheduled to open on January 1st. The crew worked late into the night loading and securing 195 combination pots on the vessel. The next day, the crew prepared the vessel for sea. They chained the pot stack, secured hatches, and tested bilge level sensors. The captain, who was the vessel's certified safety drill instructor, conducted drills with the crew, including discussions about the locations of life rafts, the vessel's emergency position indicating radio beacon, and how to make a mayday call. One crew member demonstrated how to don an emergency suit. On December 30th, at 8.35 in the evening, the Scandies Rose departed Kodiak. Five hours prior, the National Weather Service issued a marine forecast that included a gale warning and a heavy freezing spray warning for the vessel's proposed route. The vessel's planned route was northwest through the Kupanoff Strait, then southwest through the Shelikov Strait, towards False Pass en route to the Bering Sea. On Tuesday, December thirty first, at about two o'clock in the morning, the Scandies Rose exited Kupanov Strait and entered the Shelikov between the south side of the Alaskan Peninsula and the west coast, the west coast of Kodiak Island. The vessel steadied on a southwesterly course that followed the Kodiak coastline. The captain passed the watch to one of his crew members and departed the bridge. On December 31st, from 2 o'clock to 8 o'clock in the morning, the crew of the Scandes Rose rotated through hour long bridge watches. At the end of each watch, the off-going crew member completed a round of the engine room to ensure the vessel's engines and auxiliary equipment were in good working order. The vessel had begun to encounter freezing spray and accumulate ice. Deccan 1, who stood watch from 6 o'clock to 7 o'clock in the morning, told the NTSB that he had observed one inch of ice filling the mesh of the forward starboard pots and accumulating on the exterior railings of the vessel. deckhand two on watch from 7 o'clock to 8 o'clock in the morning, told the NTSB that the weather had picked up from the night before. The wind and waves were acting on the starboard bow of the vessel. Both crew members noted that the amount of accumulated ice on the vessel at that time was not enough to warrant manual removal. At 8 o'clock in the morning, when deckhand 2 passed the bridge watch to the captain, the vessel had an even keel. Later that morning, at 11.18, the captain called the fishing vessel Amatuli, which had departed Kodiak ahead of the Scandies Rose en route to Dutch Harbor. Before the two captains ended their 12-minute phone conversation, the captain of the Scandies Rose said that his said that it was very cold. His vessel was experiencing light icing, and the sea conditions were poor. About two o'clock in the afternoon, after finishing his six-hour bridge watch, the captain passed the watch to his crew. For the next six hours, the crew rotated through their watches. The vessel's heading remained steady on a southwesterly course. According to Deckhand two, the wind and weather started coming up a lot more, and progressively got worse all day. He also told the NTSB that the vessel was bucking into the seas, making a lot of spray, and the spray was making ice. About 7:15 in the evening, the crew member on watch, deckhand two, called the captain to wake him for his watch. Shortly after, the captain arrived on the bridge. The two discussed the worsening weather, the accumulation of ice on the vessel's superstructure and crab pots and the development of an approximately two degree starboard list. They considered reducing the vessel's speed and altering course to limit the freezing spray causing icing on the vessel. And the crew member asked the captain if he should wake the crew to break ice off the pots. Ultimately, the captain decided to maintain course and speed and not wake the entire crew. Deckhand 2 told the NTSB that the captain said the weather was too rough to have the crew out on deck chopping ice and that they would wait until the vessel was in protected waters. After being relieved by the captain and before leaving the bridge, Deckhand 2 took note of the accumulated ice on the vessel's pot stack through the bridge window. He said that all pots were glazed over with ice. The starboard side pots were more heavily coated with what he estimated to be about two inches of ice. The inside webbing of the starboard pots was also coated with ice. Starting about eight o'clock that evening, the captain of the Rose made a series of phone calls. First to a friend who said that the captain had told her that his vessel was icing and had a list. She added that at the time of the call, the captain did not sound alarmed. At 8.37 p.m., the Scandies Rose was about five and a half miles due east of Sutwick Island, still maintaining a southwesterly course. The captain called a fellow captain on the commercial fishing vessel Pacific Sounder. According to the Pacific Sounder captain, the captain of the Scandies Rose said that his vessel was icing really bad and he was concerned about a 20 degree starboard list that had developed. Before ending their conversation, the Scandies Rose captain also noted that the winds were blowing 60 to 70 knots from the west. The temperature was 12 degrees Fahrenheit, and it was too rough to send a crew out on deck to break ice. He was trying to seek shelter southwest of Sutwick Island. At 9.45 p.m., vessel position data shows that the Scandies Rose was about two and a half miles south of Sutwick Island. The vessel had turned 50 degrees to starboard and held a northwesterly course in the direction of Sutwick Island's southern bay. Shortly after the vessel had turned towards Sutwick, the Pacific Sounder captain called the Scandies Rose back. He said that the captain's tone had changed from their previous conversation. He said that the captain of the Scandys Rose said that I don't know how this is going to go and that his vessel's list had gotten a lot worse. The captain of the Pacific Sounder said that he had never heard the level of stress in the voice of the Scandys Rose captain before. Just after the heading changed to starboard, The two crew members who survived the accident reported that they were jolted from their beds by a sudden sustained vessel list to starboard. The entire crew of the Scandi's Rose made it to their bridge and attempted to don immersion suits while the vessel listed. The two survivors managed to climb out the port side door and finish donning their immersion suits while leaning against the vessel superstructure. The captain was able to broadcast a mayday call with the vessel's position, and at 9.55 p.m., the Coast Guard received the message. The two survivors attempted to help other crew out of the port bridge door, but were not successful. Ultimately, a wave swept them off the side of the vessel and into the water. While floating in the water, they observed the Scandies Rose sink and did not see anyone else get off the vessel. Deckhand 1 and 2 found themselves separated in heavy winds and seas. Before deckhand 1 saw the light from an inflatable life raft that had automatically deployed from the Scandies Rose as she sank. He was able to swim to the covered raft and climb aboard. Once inside, he began yelling for his fellow crew member. After several minutes, Hearing his fellow crew member yelling, deckhand two swam to the raft and climbed aboard. After receiving the mayday call from the Scandies Rose, the Coast Guard repeatedly made unsuccessful attempts to establish communications with the vessel. They also initiated search and rescue operations, launching a rescue helicopter from Air Station Kodiak. It took the crew of the rescue helicopter roughly two and a half hours to complete the approximate 170 mile trip and arrive on scene, and what the flight commander testified to be the most challenging flight of his career. Upon arrival at the captain's mayday coordinates, the rescue helicopter's crew began to search for the vessel and any survivors. Upon locating a life raft, they sent a rescue swimmer down to investigate and discovered that it was empty. They located the other life raft with the two crew members aboard shortly after. On January 1st, shortly after 2 o'clock in the morning, hoisting operations of the two crew members began. On board the helicopter, the two survivors informed the Coast Guard they had not seen any other crew members get off the vessel before it sank. After recovering the two crew members and rescue swimmer from the water, the rescue helicopter returned to base. After arriving, the two crew met, surviving crew members were transported to a waiting ambulance and driven to a local hospital for hypothermia treatment. The Coast Guard continued to search for the remaining crew of the Scandie's Rose throughout the day. In total, the Coast Guard used 3 helicopters, 2 C130 airplanes, and an high endurance cutter to search a roughly 1400 square mile area near Sutwick Island shortly after 8 p.m. 20 hours after receiving the mayday call and after 16 hours of searching for any additional survivors from the Scandies Rose the coast guard suspended search and rescue operations following the sinking of the Scandies Rose the owners of the vessel hired a marine salver and a hydrographic survey company to find the vessel and document the wreck the Scandies Rose was located in about 160 feet of water, about 1,100 feet from the Mayday position. A remote-operated vehicle conducted video surveys of the Scandies Rose and the debris field. Several of the vessel's external doors appeared to have been damaged by the impact with the seafloor. The remote-operated vehicle was unable to video the starboard side of the vessel, because of the vessel's orientation on the seafloor, footage of the vessel's bottom, port side, and stern did not show any hull breaches. An empty emergency position indicating radio beacon bracket was located, but ultimately the beacon was not found. Safety issues that were identified in the capsizing and sinking of the Scandies Rose were the effect of extreme icing conditions. Lack of accurate weather data for the accident area, the vessel's inaccurate stability instructions, and the need to update regulatory guidelines on calculating and communicating icing for stability instructions. Staff believes that the following were excluded factors in the accident the captain's pre departure decision making, operational pressures, fatigue, drug and alcohol use, the vessel's propulsion and steering systems, and the vessel's hull integrity. This concludes my presentation. The Meteorology Group Chairman from the Office of Aviation Safety, Mr. Paul Suffren, will now discuss weather-related findings. Good
7: morning, Chairman Sumwalt and members of the Board. I will now discuss weather-related issues associated with the sinking of the commercial fishing vessel Scandies Rose. Mariners interviewed throughout the course of this investigation highlighted the weather conditions west of Kodiak Island, near Sutwick Island, and Chicknick Bay as particularly hazardous, including some of the harshest weather conditions the mariners had experienced. Many said that the worst icing they had ever seen was near Sutwick Island as the colder wind from northwest flows across the area. This graphic highlights the locations of the weather observations nearest the accident site, with weather observation sites located around 100 miles away and greater south of the Alaska Peninsula. Weather conditions reported at the observation sites highlighted in this graphic at the accident time matched the gale force conditions forecast. However. Around the accident time, the accident captain reported measured winds of 60-70 to 70 knots, with a helicopter rescue queue reporting 30-foot seas near Setwick Island, with both wind and sea conditions worse than forecast. The National Weather Service uses weather data from stations along the Alaska Peninsula for forecasting, and mariners use the data to make real-time decisions. But as illustrated with the winds reported compared to the winds experienced by the Scandies Rose, Data from these weather observation stations do not fully match the conditions in the Sutwick Island and Chicknick Bay region. Observation sites that are more spread out in remote areas like Alaska can result in data that do not accurately represent the entire area and can lead to inaccurate and less precise forecast and weather modeling. Therefore, staff believes that due to the limited surface observation resources near Sutwick Island and the Chicknick Bay region, along the fishing vessel route from kodiak to dutch harbor the national weather service cannot accurately forecast the more extreme localized wind and sea conditions for the area which can lead to vessels encountering conditions that are worse than expected staff has proposed a recommendation to address this issue currently as the weather conditions warrant the National Weather Service issues either a freezing spray advisory or a heavy freezing spray warning to alert mariners to the potential for sea spray icing conditions, with a heavy freezing spray warning issued when ice accumulation rates exceed two centimeters per hour. In contrast to the text information, the National Weather Service Ocean Prediction Center Experimental Icing Forecast Graphical website provides more categories and details on sea spray icing levels above 2 centimeters per hour, giving mariners in the Bering Sea, Gulf of Alaska, and around Sutwick Island more precise information on the higher rates of sea spray icing accumulation they may encounter. None of the captains of the fishing vessels in the area interviewed at the Marine Board of Investigation public hearing were aware of the National Weather Service Ocean Prediction Center freezing spray website and agreed that the graphical freezing spray information would be a useful resource when operating in areas where freezing spray was prevalent. Currently, the National Weather Service Ocean Prediction Center freezing spray website remains experimental, and therefore would not operate as robustly as an operational National Weather Service website, nor is the National Weather Service Ocean Prediction Center freezing spray website advertised as an available resource for mariner use. Therefore, staff believes that the National Weather Service Ocean Prediction Center site could provide mariners with more detailed graphical information, not currently available elsewhere, which would help them make decisions based on more accurate weather information. Staff has proposed a recommendation to address this issue. This concludes my presentation. The investigator in charge, Bart Barnum, will now discuss operational matters. Thank you.
6: My second presentation this morning will discuss other elements of this accident. These elements include the following. The effects of extreme icing on vessel stability. Inaccurate stability instructions and their consequences the limitations of regulatory guidelines when calculating the effects of icing, regulatory stability oversight and training, and the lack of requirements for personal locator beacons. Based on the ice accretion rate obtained from the NTSB's weather model, the Scandies Rose experienced progressively worse asymmetric icing during the voyage. Throughout the day on the 31st, the vessel moved through bands of light, moderate, and heavy icing. Based on the localized weather conditions reported by the captain and crew, the Scandies Rose would have experienced ice accumulation greater than 1.6 inches per hour, which is categorized as extreme over the final two hours of the voyage. Therefore, staff believes Based on the voyage timeline and the estimated ice accumulation over that period, the Scandies Rose likely accumulated between six and 15 inches of ice on surfaces exposed to wind and icing during the accident voyage. Facing the extreme extreme icing conditions over the final two hours of the voyage, the captain determined that it was too dangerous to put his crew out on deck and remove the accumulated ice. Instead, he opted to seek shelter in the lee of Sutwick Island, which was along his intended route, an area he was familiar with, and shortly after he assumed the watch, the closest point of land. Therefore, staff believes that although the captain's decision to proceed to Sutwick Island was reasonable, by the time he was close enough to turn into the lee The icing conditions had accelerated and reduced the vessel's stability. The Scandi's Rose was carrying a full stack of pots that reached about 20 feet above the main deck. The healing force to starboard, created by the accumulation of ice that was forming asymmetrically on the starboard side of the pot stack, forecastle, bulwarks, and portions of the house, was being counteracted by the wind and seas. Once the vessel altered course to starboard toward the Lee of Sutwick Island, the wind and seas were no longer supporting the vessel. Shortly after the course change, the vessel's list to starboard increased and the, vent- and the vessel eventually capsized. Staff believes that the added weight from ice accumulating asymmetrically on the vessel and the stacked crab pots on deck raised the Scandies Roses. Center of gravity, reducing its stability and contributing to the capsizing. The Scandies Rose had stability instructions per Coast Guard regulations that had been completed by a qualified individual. Prior to departure, the captain and crew loaded the vessel with 195 combination pots, which was below the 208 limit set on their stability instructions. They secured the pots and all other deck gear against shifting and ensured all doors and hatches were closed, requirements specified in the stability instructions. In addition, the vessel's fuel and crowd tank levels were estimated to be in compliance with the stability instructions. Following the sinking, the Coast Guard's Marine Safety Center conducted a forensic technical stability analysis of the Scandies Rose which evaluated the stability instructions for the vessel they noted differences when comparing tank capacities mathematical errors omissions as well as that the 2019 stability assessment apparently neglected downflooding a key criteria when calculating vessel stability therefore staff believes that although the crew loaded the Scandies Rose Per the stability instructions on board, the stability instructions were inaccurate. Therefore, the vessel did not meet regulatory stability criteria and was more susceptible to capsizing. Because the vessel did not meet regulatory criteria, the captain had little room for error in icing conditions that the vessel encountered on its voyage. The captain relied on and loaded his vessel in accordance with the stability instructions. Therefore, staff believes, because the stability instructions were inaccurate, the captain was unaware that his vessel did not meet the margin of safety intended to be provided by the stability instructions. The regulations governing stability for vessels that operate in waters where there is a potential for icing, such as the Scandi's Rose, Factor in a minimum set amount of added weight for accumulated ice and specify that ice accumulation should be applied symmetrically to exposed surfaces. The regulations do not specifically provide guidance on how to apply ice accumulation on crab pots. Naval architects from the Coast Guard and private industry agreed that per the regulations, They calculate the added weight of ice on a stack of crab pots by applying ice uniformly to to the continuous horizontal and vertical surfaces of the pot stack, like a shoebox of ice of the regulatory thickness placed over the stack. However, because crab pots are made up of tubular frames in mesh, they do not act as continuous horizontal or vertical surfaces and will accumulate ice not only on the vertical and horizontal frames but on a, but on all external and internal mesh or webbing of the crab pots additionally Mariners reported that freezing spray often results in ice asymmetrically accumulating on the vessel and its pot stack therefore staff believes that current Regulatory guidelines on calculating the effects of icing on fishing vessels' stability do not take into account how ice actually accumulates on and in crab pots and crab pot stacks. Staff has proposed two recommendations to address this issue. Captains of commercial fishing vessels testified that they frequently consulted their vessel's stability instructions when operating. But when they are asked if, prior to the sinking of the Scandies Rose, they are aware of the amount of accumulated ice the regulations prescribed to be factored into their stability instructions, none knew. When they learned that the regulations allotted for uniform icing of 1.3 inches on horizontal surfaces and 0.65 of an inch on vertical surfaces and only on the external surfaces of their pots, they were all surprised on how little it was. Many even acknowledged that they would typically carry more ice than, than what was allotted for in regulations. On the Scandies Rose, the crew noted one inch of accumulated ice as early as six o'clock the morning of the accident. But the captain, likely not knowing the icing thickness used in his stability report, did not voice concern when he relieved the watch at 8 o'clock, nor later in the day when the ice continued to build and ultimately determined to delay sheltering or taking other mitigative actions. Therefore, staff believes that if vessel captains are aware of the amount of icing that is factored into their stability instructions, they would be better prepared to make critical vessel safety decisions when operating in areas of potential icing. Staff has proposed two recommendations in this area to address the issue. The regulations do not require that owners, masters, or crew of commercial fishing vessels receive formal stability training. And neither the majority owner, the captain, nor the crew of the Scandies Rose had taken formal stability training. Mariners must rely on experience and what they have learned independently. Coast Guard guidance indicates that operators should be provided training on stability. Schools and training facilities offer Coast Guard-approved stability courses specific to fishing vessels, the effects of icing being one of the topics covered. Several captains who had voluntarily taken stability courses said that they took great value from them and suggested that they should be made mandatory for all captains. Therefore, staff believes that formal stability training would provide fishing vessel crews with a better understanding of the principles and regulatory basis of stability, including the effects of icing and staff proposes a reiteration of a currently open recommendation to address this issue. As part of the post-casualty investigations of both the fishing vessel destination, a similar vessel that sank in the Bering Sea in 2007, and the Scandies Rose, the Coast Guard's Marine Safety Center conducted stability assessments and vessel stability instruction review. Both vessels' stability instructions had been created by qualified individuals but were not subject to technical oversight or review from a classification society or the Coast Guard. Ultimately, the Marine Safety Center concluded that the stability instructions for both the destination and the Scandi's Rose failed to meet regulatory stability criteria. Therefore, staff believes that an oversight program to review and audit stability instructions produced for uninspected commercial fishing vessels, like the Scandies Rose, that are not required to carry a load line certificate, would identify and reduce potential errors in stability instructions, which in turn may reduce the chance that vessels are are sailing without the intended margin of safety provided by applicable stability criteria. Staff has proposed a recommendation to address this issue. Personal locator beacons can provide search and rescue operations with an accurate, continuously updated location of every person carrying one. In the case of the Scandi's Rose, the failure of the emergency position indicating radio beacon to provide a position after crew members were forced to abandon the vessel into the water without means of communicating with search and rescue personnel and the inadvertent miscommunication of the correct search area from the on-scene rescue access. Staff believes that personal locator beacons would aid in search and rescue operations by providing continuously updated and correct coordinates of crew members' location. And staff proposes a reiteration of a currently open recommendation to address this issue. Mr. Chairman, this completes staff's presentations and we are prepared to answer any questions.
0: Well, thank you very much for those uh, very good presentations and uh, most importantly thank you for an excellent investigation we'll now turn to the board member questions and we'll begin with vice chairman lansberg thank you uh,
1: mr chairman um so i have a, a question for uh our meteorologist uh, here um is the uh, would you consider that the weather forecasting was accurate in the conditions that the Scandy Rose encountered? Uh,
7: the based on the forecast information and the information observed by the uh, vessel captain, the wind and wave uh, conditions were uh, worse than forecast.
1: How accurate are the uh, are the freezing spray forecasts?
7: Uh, In this particular case, the forecast was for heavy freezing spray or greater than two centimeters uh, per hour accumulation. And uh, staff believes uh, that's what the vessel was encountering uh, on their southwestward uh, trip.
1: So for a period of of time, um, could we perhaps bring up slide number 34? Um, I think that might clarify this a little bit. And, and while we're working on that, if I remember correctly, it said uh, that the vessel was uh, uh, had about seven hours of moderate icing from about 10 o'clock until about 1700. And so that refers to the rate of accumulation. Do they have any way of measuring the cumulative effect? So if you stay in moderate long enough, You're continuing to accumulate, and as uh, uh, Mr. Barnum's presentation has shown, uh, the stability instructions don't account for anything uh, anywhere near what the reality is. So uh, do they account at all for if you're in a uh, moderate icing for a period of time that it's going to be the equivalent of uh, uh, heavy icing uh, for a shorter period? Is there any computation for that?
7: Um, as far as computation and what's available in the stability instructions, I'll have to pass that off to uh, investigator in charge, Mr. Barnum.
6: Yes. So the um, as far as the forecast goes, not to my knowledge that there is a uh, calculation uh, that can be um, used by the mariner to calculate the total icing that that they will experience in that period, that they're going through that that band of icing. Um, I think it should be noted that icing will affect vessels differently depending on size, um, multitude of different factors, air temperature, uh, uh, ocean temperature, vessel heading. Uh, so, uh, for just to have a a, a basic or a uh, generic. Equation for adding up icing for a certain time period. I, I don't think there is one available now. And it, it, yeah, it,
1: I think this makes it pretty clear though that we don't at this juncture have a really full understanding of, of how this works. And as I said, we're looking at the rate of accumulation versus the cumulative effect. Uh, Mr. Suffern, um does NWS have any way of, ver- of, of verifying their forecasts? And I realize that we're, we don't have a lot of information up in that part of the world, but uh, do mariners submit the equivalent of pilot reports um, when, they're, when they're up there that actually get not just talking to each other, but can get into the forecast offices?
7: So, currently, the National Weather Service has a, uh, a program called the Voluntary Observing Ship Program, or VOS, and uh, there are certain ships uh, that do provide observations uh, based on that system to the National Weather Service Forecast Office. Uh, for example, the uh, U.S. Uh, Coast Guard cutter that came to the search area was one of the uh, VOS ships. Um, so that is one of the programs that's available for mariners to submit observations.
1: Well, it would seem to me that it, it's it's tough when you're doing forecasting and looking at models if you don't have a way of verifying whether it worked the way you thought it was going to and to be able to to modify them. Um, it, it's tough to, to get better forecasts. So uh, um, anyway, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'll uh, wait for the next round.
2: Thank you, vansburg and Member Homiy. Sorry about that. I had some uh, delays with one of my uh, with the mic. Thanks very much uh, to the staff and uh, um, just a few questions on uh, personal locator beacons. but first, I'm wondering uh, if you can describe the conditions. Uh, that the two surviving crew members encountered. I know that they had remained on board for, uh, uh, they stayed as long as they could, uh, uh, yelling into the bridge for their fellow crew members to exit. A wave swept them off the side. They had their immersion suits on. But if you could talk about some of the conditions, uh, I, I believe, for that, that period of time that they were facing in the water.
6: Yes, ma'am. <clears throat> um conditions reported by both the surviving crew members and then also the um arriving helicopter flight crew were about 30 foot waves, um which was you know considerable wave heights for that area. Uh and then also, you know, um four to six degree water temperature Celsius. And um, and then also there was um significant uh, wind velocity between 60 and 70 knots
2: and um, how far uh, how how long was it until they were able to locate uh the rat what one of the rafts the one they eventually boarded
6: um yes ma'am the um the survivors indicated that DeCan um, too. Before he was able to locate the first raft, he was in the water between 10 and 20 minutes, I believe.
7: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, their immersion suits are tested for how many degrees in in water and for how long? <clears throat> um,
6: regulate, yes, ma'am. The regulations require that uh, vessels t- such as Scandies Rose carry immersion suits that are Uh, Designed to keep the the wearer um, their core body temperature from dropping two degrees, oh, that's two degrees Celsius over a six hour period um, in two degree water. So those that they had on board would have been rated for that.
2: Two degrees in calm water. Yes, ma'am. And this Uh, was definitely not calm water. Correct. Uh and so the helicopter they they were rescued about four hours later, correct? From when they were swept off the vessel. That is correct. Okay. And can you talk about how difficult it is for search and rescue operations in these in such a remote area?
6: Yes, ma'am. So areas um like Alaska where it's a, a large um area of potential large area they need to cover Uh, it's extremely difficult uh, to try to strategically place assets um, where they can be most effective where the fishing fleets are in this particular instance um, air station Kodiak is a major uh, base there where they launch assets out of with the weather conditions that were forecasted um, they have limitations on uh, what type of aircraft can leave air station Kodiak so strategically, they moved their C-130 airplanes to Anchorage, Alaska. So they would, be able to be, they would be able to take off and assist in any search and rescue that was needed because they would be grounded in that type of weather while in Kodiak. Um, so obviously, to answer your question, ma'am, uh, weather in this area is a huge factor as well. Um, it can, can affect their communications significantly and also their ability to search.
2: And
6: there was heavy icing in that area. Yes, ma'am. Uh, heavy icing was experienced, obviously, on board the Scandi's Rose, uh, but also the flight crew of the rescue helicopter that arrived on scene um, while they deployed their rescue swimmer. Once they retrie- re- retrieved him from the water, uh, he, was, he had to be de-iced because the ice had accumulated on his body and uh, space gear.
2: Well, I, I have to say I have a lot of respect for uh, uh the the Coast Guard. I, I I had spent some time in April 2019 uh, uh in Kodiak at Air Station Kodiak and in Anchorage uh for uh a number of days with the Coast Guard and um they do a tremendous job uh that's very difficult and um uh, thank them for their work. I will have additional questions about this in the next round. Thanks so much. Thank you, Member Hamidi and Member Graham. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, before I begin uh,
3: with the questioning, I would just want to um, add to what the Chairman uh, said a few minutes ago in his opening statement and acknowledge why the NTSB has revitalized its focus on commercial fishing safety with its inclusion on the 2021-2022 and Most Wanted list and this capsizing coming to a public board meeting. Commercial fishing is one of the most dangerous occupations in the United States. Every year, more than 40 lives are lost. The Center for Disease Control estimates a fatality rate 35 times that of all U.S. workers. For an industry that supports more than 700,000 jobs and contributes more than $50 billion to the economy. These workers deserve better. We must do more to protect those who have been risking their lives to feed all of us. I have a few questions for our meteorologist, Mr. Suffern. The uh, National Weather Service has two main categories of alerts for freezing spray, heavy freezing spray warning and freezing spray advisory. Mr. Suffren, can you explain the difference between the two?
7: So you're you're correct. There are two uh, different levels, Um, the first being a freezing spray advisory where um, freezing spray accumulation is predicted to be between zero and two centimeters per hour. And then heavy freezing spray warning is for two centimeters an hour and above ice accumulation.
3: Right. So based on the observed weather conditions, during the last two hours of the accident voyage, what was the estimated ice accumulation?
7: So based on the observed conditions provided uh relayed by the accident captain uh, to his fellow captain, the 60 to 70 knots would equate to extreme freezing spray conditions, which would be uh, four centimeters per hour and above. And
3: the Weather Service doesn't have an uh, advisory for that or a warning for that. Is that correct?
7: The heavy freezing spray advisory being two centimeters and above would include four centimeters and above.
3: It doesn't have an extreme one. So can you please discuss why the estimated icing rate in the final two hours of the voyage would be described as extreme icing based on the model that they use, the Oberlin model?
7: So currently the National Weather Service for forecasting uh, freezing spray uses uh scientific e- equations and guidelines uh produced by Overland uh in the late 80s and early 90s and that basically takes into account uh air temperature uh water temperature um wind speed and um the freezing point of uh, salt water And uh, through some math, can calculate and estimate um, light, moderate, heavy, and extreme uh, freezing spray for those calculations.
3: Great. So currently, how can a mariner know whether he or she will encounter heavy freezing spray or extreme freezing spray?
7: When the National Weather Service issues a uh, heavy freezing spray warning, that would include both heavy freezing spray and extreme uh, freezing spray conditions. In addition, the National Weather Service uh, has an experimental Ocean Prediction Center uh, graphical website, which provides uh, a lot more categories for freezing spray conditions above uh, two centimeters per hour.
3: Okay, so the... uh the Ocean Prediction Center's uh, Experimental Icing website attempts to fix this problem and provide localized freezing spray information. I take it
7: it provides a, a graphical representation of uh, the the freezing spray categories that could be experienced by mariners throughout uh, the Bering Sea, uh, Gulf of Alaska, and uh, and that portion of uh, of the United States
3: it's my understanding that this website's not uh, available to the mariners at this time and uh, do we have a proposal in uh the uh, draft recommend or do we have a draft recommendation to the national War, uh, weather service to make it operational
7: so currently the uh, website is experimental and has been so since 2014 uh, what that pertains to is that While the website is available, um, anyone can can get on the URL and and click on that particular website and view the information. Um, Being experimental, if the website were to go down for some reason, uh, it would – take uh, someone noticing or, or additional IT resources to bring it back up while making that website operational, which staff has, has recommended through this report, would provide a much more robust website as well as potentially uh, leading to more um, opportunities for individuals, including mariners, to, to view the information on the website and make it more accessible to mariners.
6: Okay. Thank you, Mr. Severn. I see my time is up. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Member Graham, thank you. You're welcome. And Member Chapman.
4: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. The circumstances of this accident are both tragic and they're frightening. I join in expressing condolences to the surviving crew and those who lost loved ones in this accident. The draft report notes and my colleagues have highlighted that the NTSP's current most wanted list appropriately includes the issue area Improve passenger and fishing vessel safety. Fishing consistently tops the list of most deadly occupations, and this accident underscores the reasons for our focus on commercial fishing in the context of the most wanted list. All of us at NTSB share an interest in doing what we can to help improve that safety record. The Scandies Rose was required to have stability instructions completed by like what the relevant Coast Guard regulations refer to as a qualified individual. The term qualified individual is defined within the regulations. I understand those who fall into this category are most often practicing naval architects. What qualifications must an individual meet or possess in order to practice as a naval architect and Are those qualifications regulated
6: on the state level or the federal level? Yes, sir. The regulations will define or do define qualified individual, like you said, uh, as someone that uh, has formal training and experience uh, completing naval architectural calculations. In this particular accident, the naval architect who completed the stability instructions was a licensed professional engineer in the state of Washington.
4: Okay, so those are state level qualifications that have to yes. be met, and there's 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 no specific requirement at the federal level. Is
6: that correct? That is correct. Other than what's defined in regulation, right? Okay,
4: okay. Now, the draft report highlights that there was no requirement for the Scandies Rose stability and stability instructions to be reviewed, and we'll discuss a recommendation which I support, by the way which we'll be uh, offering to the Coast Guard, that it develop an oversight program to review the stability instructions of commercial fishing festivals in the category of the Scandies rows. Under the existing regulatory structure, what would trigger a review of stability instructions for a larger commission, uh, uh, I'm sorry, for a larger commercial fishing vessel, vessel I'm sorry. I understand that those larger vessels are subject to review. What would trigger that review?
6: Well, sir, I believe the the class of vessel you're referring to is potentially a a fishing vessel, a modern one that maybe is required to carry a load line certificate, Um, load line certificate. Load line is not only a a physical mark on the vessel that denotes safe loading, but it also is a classification that is structured around the structural design construction and maintenance of a vessel additional oversight so a vessel of that class required to query a load line certificate um, their stability instructions are going to be reviewed by a classification society most often the american bureau of shipping shipping um, that 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 oversight is 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 then done again uh, by the coast guard who oversees the abs in a uh, random randomly audited uh, method where they will periodically check uh, stability instructions for those vessels.
4: Okay, thank you. That's helpful. Uh, so, for larger larger vessels, is the process for developing those stability instructions essentially the, the same? That is, are stability instructions developed by a so-called qualified individual? And I understand that, that they're subject to further review, but the process for developing those instructions is essentially the same. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I may have some additional questions on this later.
0: Member Chapman, uh, thank you very much. Yeah, it's been noted by members Chapman and member Graham, uh, some of the figures from NIOSH, which is a part of the Centers for Disease Control. NIOSH is the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health and the figures provided by their expert, one of their experts in the fishing industry, uh, Samantha Case, uh, pointed out that commercial fishing for for the year two thousand and nineteen of which this this tragedy occurred in two thousand and nineteen with just just two hours to go before the new year but commercial fish commercial fishing in two thousand and nineteen wasn't just one of the most deadly occupations in America it was the most deadly occupation in America, surpassing what is typically number one, and that is logging. Uh, this boils down to in the rate of fatalities, the rate per one hundred thousand workers in the industry uh, commercial fishing uh, had a fatality rate of one hundred and forty five fatalities per one hundred thousand uh, full time employees. Compare that. To the average of all workers, which is 3.5 fatalities per 100,000. So it is. uh, uh, There's a lot of need for improvement in this area. The NTSB chair hosted a uh, two-day, three-day forum on commercial fishing vessel safety in 2010, uh, and more needs to be done in this area. And that's why it's on the most wanted list. Um, As I did say during the most wanted list board meeting uh sir walter scott said nearly 200 years ago it's not fish that you're buying it's men's lives and uh and i think that those figures that i just mentioned highlights uh that we are really um buying men's lives when we go out and buy fish because it is such a deadly industry it is truly the deadliest catch um, so I do want to thank staff for a good investigation. Um, I think that, uh, um, the Coast Guard Marine Board, uh, did not complete, uh, did not get their, uh, Marine Board, uh, completed until March of this year. So the accident happened on the last day of 2019. Six weeks later, we entered into a pandemic. Actually, that was two months and 11 days later, we entered, entered into a pandemic that we are still officially in. And then the Coast Guard did their Marine Board. So we weren't able to actually get a lot done on this until the Marine Board completed. And so I want to point out that even though the accident was a year and a half ago, uh, the bulk of staff's investigative work um, had to be done in the last three months. So thank you for your good work. A question for you. Mr. Barnum, and and that is, is that was the captain's decision to set sail under those conditions, and the conditions of a National Weather Service gale warning and a heavy freezing spray advisory, was the captain's decision to set sail under those forecast conditions, was that a reasonable decision?
6: Yes, sir. The uh, staff believes that it was. Um, foul weather in that part of the world is commonplace. Um, it, it's a something they encounter almost on a daily basis. Um, what is no normal occur normal um, procedure when encountering foul weather is to seek shelter. There's a variety of places along the along the planned route there that the vessel um, could have potentially sought shelter. The captain was also um, comfortable with his vessel. Uh, he loaded the vessel in accordance with his instil, uh, new stability instructions that he had on board. Uh, he'd been sailing that vessel for um, a little over eight years as captain and been in similar situations uh, with pots on deck and and it'd it come out um, unscathed. Um, in addition, also, there was other vessels leaving at the same time. He wasn't the only one leaving. So ultimately, staff believed that his decision to leave uh, was acceptable.
0: Right. I think that's a very important uh, finding right there that you're proposing. So I just wanted to establish that. So um, we'll now proceed to the next round of questions by Chairman Landsberg. Uh,
1: thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'd like to follow up on that line of, of questioning. Um, so if I understood you correctly, Mr. Barnum, you're saying that the fishing crews typically launch uh, in in forecast conditions like this. Is Is that a fair statement?
6: Yes, sir, that is.
1: Um, okay. And if the conditions become worse than forecast, um, there were there are safe zones that they can go to. Is that correct?
6: yes, sir as As described by uh, fishermen that frequent those areas um, in interviews, they indicated that yes, there is various locations where a vessel of that size can seek shelter
1: were there any safe zones along the route prior to uh, Sutwick Island so um, you know this this seems to things got rather rapidly worse uh along the way um was would there would there have been another place where the captain could have diverted to uh prior to trying to reach Sutwick i mean you said that he was familiar with that but I'm just wondering if there were other places, and are they marked on the charts, or is this sort of uh, uh, just known by the locals that this is where you go?
6: Uh, yes sir there was uh from what we are told uh, places along the southern side of the Alaskan Peninsula between uh the West Coast Kodiak and Sutwick Island where he could have uh, sought shelter um,
1: so had he even an hour or two prior he could have sought shelter uh is am i correct in understanding that
6: if if the captain of the vessel had um reason where he where he thought that they would need to seek shelter at that moment um potentially there was some locations he could have sought shelter prior to sidewalk yes
1: and it seems like um And it became very clear to me as we we looked at this that the wind was simultaneously helping while accreting the ice on the starboard side. It was also helping to prop up the vessel. Do I understand that correctly?
6: Yes, sir. That's what staff believes as the vessel continued along its southwesterly course. uh, The prevailing wind and waves were acting on the starboard side of the vessel as you say, essentially propping up the vessel.
1: So when he made the turn, obviously he lost the stabilizing effect of the wind, and now the weight uh, becomes predominant. Am I understanding that correctly?
6: Yes, sir, that is correct.
1: Okay, and so ultimately what we get to is that the um, uh, stability instructions don't really take much of that into account am am i correct in in understanding that or is is that incorrect
6: yes sir I believe partially i mean the stability instructions the stability c- criteria which they're they are created from are designed to pro- provide an adequate level of safety for vessels that are operated prudently it, it does this through um including a safety margin that safety margin that's calculated into them uh, takes into account certain aspects such as wind and roll, water on deck, in this case, icing. Um, So there is some level of safety margin built into them, but to the degree that the Scaneys Rose encountered, it it wouldn't have been uh, nearly that that much.
1: So the margins under these conditions are not sufficient?
6: Well, sir, I believe, um, you know, first, as we've recommended this report, this draft report, that uh, a study needs to be completed so we can, so the fine is that that study can be, you know, analyzed and then incorporated in, into regulations in the future. We needed to know how exactly the, these ice pots ice and how they will affect the vessel stability. Once that's done, I think we can more accurately see if the regulations are inadequate or not understand
1: thank you uh thank you mr chairman i uh, appreciate the opportunity yes indeed and uh, member Homedy.
2: thanks very much uh okay so we have a 30-foot sea. i just want to pick up from where i left off we have 30-foot seas 56 to 60 uh uh mile per hour wind gusts and um uh, Can you tell me how far they drifted from the vessel, where the vessel sank, the two surviving crew members? Uh,
6: Yes, ma'am. I I know that information is contained uh, in some of the information on the docket, but off the top of my head, I don't know exactly how far they drifted.
2: And that's okay. I mean, but we do know that they were on uh, the the raft for four hours until they were rescued. So it must have been some some distance at at some point. And the helicopter, uh, or at least the Coast Guard, had some difficulty locating them because at some point. The the lights went off on the raft pretty early. They had found, I think, an hour in their emergency kit, and there was a flashlight, and I believe they waved down the helicopter with the flashlight, correct? That is correct, ma'am. So uh, when you have a situation like this, what could have helped uh, locate the surviving crew members more quickly?
6: Uh, yes, ma'am. So, obviously, staff believes that you know the search and ref- rescue was obviously effective and that it rescued these two survivors. Um, there was um, some question in that because the EPIRB did not broadcast a receivable signal, and as mentioned earlier, there was uh, some confusion with uh, communication coordinates passed an error. Staff believes that personal locator beacons, if worn, and if uh, obtained or if had by the crew of the vessel, would help uh, search and rescue operations more accurately pinpoint their location.
2: And so, the difference between an EPIRB, which would have said, which would have uh, uh, indicated the location of the vessel, uh, had it activated, uh, the difference there is personal locator beacons, if provided to the crew. Would have been with each individual,
6: correct? Uh, yes, ma'am. The, the EPER, the the crew is trained to, um, if, if they need to abandon the vessel or if there's a, a disaster like that, to take the EPER with them. So, or it's designed to flow free. So the EPER might necessarily not be with the with the vessel. Okay. But yes, you are correct. The, the POBs are designed to be worn on the crew member.
2: Great. And so have we. And maybe this might be where Mr. Rainey comes up and talks about previous recommendations on personal locator beacons that we've issued.
8: Certainly. Member Hamidi, we issued uh, M1745 out out of the El Faro accident, uh, recommending that personnel employed on vessels in coastal Great Lakes and Ocean Service uh, be provided with personal locator beacons.
2: What's the status of that recommendation? Uh, the
8: status of that is uh, currently open, unacceptable uh, response. The Coast Guard responded in 2018 that uh, they felt that at the time the technology uh, did not provide the requisite location accuracy for the purpose. Uh, they are continuing to look into the technologies working with uh, ISO and, and RTCM. We, we disagreed with that and, and thereby you know classified it open, unacceptable.
2: And what did we? Why did we disagree?
8: We we felt that um, the the accuracy on on the PLBs was sufficient to provide a useful tool for searching. It's very hard to find uh, a person in the water, um, and, and as you point out, in, in these um, you know sea states and weather conditions, that the um, the satellite capability, the the PLB plus uh, some local home, homing capabilities, that we felt that it would be a useful tool. So we. We didn't agree with the Coast Guard position at the time, but we do know that they are looking into the technology further.
2: And in in Alfaro, three days after the sinking, search crews spotted the remains of a crew member in an emergent immersion suit. It is unknown when the crew member perished, but if their immersion suit had a working personal locator beacon attached to it, would they could they have been located sooner?
8: Perhaps, yes.
2: And we found in in another investigation, or at least in another investigation, uh, personal locator beacons may have aided search efforts in Trinity 2 in 2011. In that investigation, the crew had to abandon ship, and the master was not able to grab the EPIRB. The 10 crew members abandoned the vessel and were not found for three days, and only six survived. If the life-saving equipment had included a personal locator beacon, could the uh, search team uh, uh, team maybe have uh, uh, found the crews sooner than three days?
8: I, I think that's certainly possible. I that was the lift boat accident. Yes, which
2: is exactly why this is a recommendation included in our most wanted list uh, of transportation safety safety improvements. Thanks very much. Sure.
6: Thank you. And now, member Graham.
3: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I was just looking here at the uh, stability instructions and instructions to the master, and uh, I'm amazed that nowhere on it does it discuss how much ice can accumulate on the deck and on the pot stacks. I, I That's just amazing. As a, As a master, I would think that kind of information would be most important to you for the safety of the vessel, and I definitely support the proposed recommendation of including the icing amounts used to calculate the stability criteria. Um, I have some questions on the stability instructions. What is a load line certificate?
6: Uh, yes, sir. So as I had mentioned earlier, uh, load line of a vessel is a higher degree of oversight of a vessel in 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 regards to its construction and its maintenance. Uh, large newer fishing vessels built after um, July 2013. Uh, are required to have a load line certificate, basically ensuring that they meet those higher standards. And they're built to a, to a, uh, not only the standards, but also are uh, inspected periodically. They're hauled out of the water periodically, and, the, and their haul is inspected.
3: Okay, so if if the Scandies Rose was built after what is it, July of 2013, uh, sure. this size, it would have required a load line certificate, correct? Yes, sir. Okay, would a load line certificate, did, is in your uh, opinion, would have helped the Scandies Rose captain better understand his stability requirements and its limitations?
6: I don't necessarily think I don't necessarily think that it would be accurate. I do believe that his stability instructions would have have had more oversight, and therefore would have been uh, potentially been accurate, and um, and he wouldn't have left port as he did here with inaccurate ones. Okay,
3: thank you for that. Um, I'm going to switch to uh, stability training. I know back in 2010, the NTSB held a fishing vessel safety forum and discussed the issue of training fishing vessel crews on vessel stability. Um, About a year later, in 2011, um, that led to the NTSB issuing safety recommendation M11-24 Addressing fishing vessel stability training to the Coast Guard, and I'll read it here require all owners, masters, and chief engineers of commercial fishing industry vessels to receive training and demonstrate competency in vessel stability, watertight integrity, su- subdivision, and the use of vessel stability inform- information, regardless of plans for implementing the other training provisions of the 2010 Coast Guard Authorization Act. Uh, what is the status of this recommendation?
6: Yes, sir. Uh, Graham. Mr. Scott Rainey, please.
8: Yes, Member Graham. The status is currently open, unacceptable. And as you mentioned, we, we have uh, associated that with our current most wanted list. Um, the Coast Guard's last response was in um, October of 2016, uh, letting us know that uh, they are working with their federal advisory committee to develop uh, curriculum.
3: Okay so this this recommendation's been out for 10 years and we haven't heard anything in almost 5 years from an advisory committee. Yes. Okay and uh and we've lost or at least we've been get, investigated two uh, commercial major com- commercial uh fishing vessel accidents since then. That's correct, yes sir. Okay. Thank you for that. I'd like to see the Coast Guard act on this a little quicker, and I I, I see we're going to highlight that in our reiteration of recommendations. So I thank you for that, and uh, I uh, yield back the rest of my time, Mr. Chairman.
0: Member Graham, thank you very much, and Member Chapman.
4: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. A couple of questions about weather resources. Uh, obviously, extreme weather conditions were a factor, and I gather the accident site is known to be prone to difficult weather, including, certainly, icing. Yet the investigation revealed that the surface and the buoy station—I'm I'm sorry, the surface and buoy stations nearest to the accident site were 95 and 125 miles away, respectively. Is it realistic to expect accurate marine weather forecasting with such limited and widely dispersed surface observations?
7: Um, based on the, the weather conditions that were experienced and the, um, the, the wind funneling through the terrain uh, phenomena typically uh, discussed as willy in that area, um, you'd have to have the surface observation resources to be able to be knowledgeable of that. And, and, and the locations the observations are right now, they do not uh, reflect uh, the willy conditions.
4: And the and the conditions at the time of the accident, while they were certainly on the extreme end, not really unusual for that area. Is that correct? Uh,
7: based on the mariner feedback um, at the Marine Board of Investigation, they all described the the weather conditions that the worst weather conditions that they experienced were in the Sutwick and Chicknick Bay regions.
4: Do we know whether NOAA or the National Weather Service have previously sought funding or whether they'd otherwise plan to increase surface observation resources in the
7: area? Uh, it's currently not known.
4: And do we have a sense of what an optimal array, or do you have an opinion about what an optimal array of observation resources might look like in that area?
7: The observational resources to be able to capture the more extreme wind conditions, uh, especially on the higher end cases such as this accident or other cases where you get uh, wind conditions that are um, basically hurricane force winds, uh, having the observational resources to be able to not only let forecasters know those conditions are, are happening, but also uh, highlight that to the Mariner community uh, would be a value. In addition, it would go into the weather computer model data, which would uh, further make forecast uh, conditions more accurate.
4: Certainly you need observation sites that are closer or more more uh, frequent than ninety five and one hundred and twenty five miles away, it seems to me um, there are few regions in the world where uh, that are more dependent uh, as you know, on marine and aviation transportation than Alaska in terms of marine, it seems clear that weather observation resources are inadequate in the area encompassing the accident site. Are there similar gaps in uh, resources necessary for aviation forecasting?
7: Um, that particular uh, line was not um, um, discussed through this investigation.
4: Oh, okay, I understand. Um, certainly, I would I would encourage NOAA and, and NWS to take a look at that as well. It does appear that we've got some gaps here, and that's uh, it's it's an important area in terms of marine and aviation. And uh, it's an area obviously that's subject to uh, very difficult weather conditions, Mr. Chairman. I'm going to hold uh, the remainder of my questions for the next round. Thank you. Thank you, member Chapman.
0: I know that we've mentioned bits and pieces of the search and rescue effort, um, but I think it's worth noting a little bit more of it. Um, the coast guard is a is an agency that some of us don't think too much about until we See them rescuing people, plucking people off of roofs of uh, homes during uh, hurricanes and, uh, and extraordinary rescue efforts like this one. Um, the pilot, one of the pilots of the helicopter, uh, said it was the most challenging flight of his career. The turbulence was so severe that it took both pilots uh, to help keep the helicopter straight and level. There was severe turbulence. There was downdrafts. As uh, Member Hamidi already pointed out, there were thirty-foot seas. Um, the helicopter was low on fuel, so they had to uh, turn off the APU, uh, which turned off the heater inside the uh, the uh, helicopter. Once they were taking the, uh, the surviving two crew members back, uh, this was an incredible rescue. I think a lot of people don't realize how remote parts of uh, uh, Alaska can be. Can Can you uh, elaborate, uh, Mister Barnum, just a little bit more about the search and rescue efforts? Those extraordinary efforts.
6: Uh, yes, yes, sir. I believe you put it extremely well there. Um, the uh, when the Coast Guard was notified uh, that search and rescue operation was going to take place, they uh, began to uh, get preparations ready um, because of the severe weather. Uh, additional flight planning was required. Um, they needed to make sure that flying out there, they would be able to get back or get to another suitable location where they could take fuel and transport any survivors. Um, but after doing that, they also had to uh, load additional fuel on board the helicopter. Um, they traditionally don't carry a full tank of fuel uh, on board. So they, they had to fill up, fill up on fuel. Um, they also, after the helicopter left, they launched a C-130 aircraft from Anchorage, Alaska, that, was, that acted as an overflight and was able to uh, transfer communications from the helicopter because it was low in, flying at such low altitudes, uh, any uh, voice communication from the helicopter wasn't able to make it back to the base. So the, the overflight would, uh, would act as a communications platform.
0: Yeah, thank you very much. I want to switch now to stability because I think that's certainly a, a, a central area of this of this tragedy. During the U.S. Coast Guard testing uh, of where they sprayed um, water, cold water on, uh, on crab pots during a test, I think they sprayed water on a crab pot for like 72 hours. Uh, how much did the... Weight increase of that one crab
6: pot. Yes, sir. Um, referring to the uh, uh, preliminary kind of experiment on the Polar Star, where they sprayed a, a crab pot with uh, fresh water for a three-day period, the um, the weight wasn't accurately able to be determined because the load cell that they were using uh, was maxed out. Uh, it maxed out at three thousand pounds. Uh, the gaining weight of the crab pot was roughly one thousand pounds.
0: Yeah, so so it, it it more
6: than tripled. Thanks. The um, the regulatory
0: requirements for stability calculations assume I think it's uh, I think it's 1.3 inches of surface uh um, surface ice on the horizontal surfaces and about 0.65 of an inch on the vertical set, um, surfaces. How realistic are those assumptions?
6: Sir, from what we experienced talking to captains and, and people familiar naval architecture industry uh, that deal with these type of vessels uh, often, those uh, assumptions weren't very realistic.
0: Yeah, and uh, and in fact, how much ice did our investigative staff uh, estimate was on the crampots of Scandies Rose?
6: Sir, staff estimated and. To be between 6 and 15 inches of ice. Between 6
0: and 15 inches. Um, Yeah. So certainly I have more questions. We're going to take a break. Before we take a break, I would like to encourage uh, all participants to turn off their cameras and their microphones. And we'll take a 10-minute break. We will reconvene at 11.15, which is really about nine minutes from
6: now. We are in recess.
0: Okay, we're back in session, and we will resume with questions from the board members. Vice Chairman Landsberg. Bruce, you may be muted.
1: So I am. Uh, If I could ask that we bring up uh, slide 39, please, which I think will um, kind of illustrate all of the uh, things that uh, um, probably need to be covered here. And you know, I look at it. And I give all of my colleagues uh, uh, accolades for uh, covering all of these points rather well. But, you know, this illustrates uh, this was a a vessel that almost got into the same problem that the Scandi's Rose did. Um, I think what we've seen is that even though we routinely operate in in these environments, uh, we have rather badly underestimated uh, the weather conditions uh, that and some of the requirements that we should have. Um, we see that the National Weather Service doesn't have the ability to accurately forecast or, or to model, and there are uh, relatively easy fixes for that with more observation points. We've seen that the stability instructions and regulations are not uh, sufficient nor realistic. Uh, the chairman has pointed that out, as has some of my other uh, colleagues. Um, we've seen that uh, personal locator beacons really are essential because uh, crew members can easily, un- under these conditions, be separated from the vessel's uh, eperb, and uh, they they do work uh, rather well. I carry one uh, when I um, uh, sail or fly. I think uh, the industry uh, has. Operated under these environments and the sort of the tribal wisdom, I guess, that um, you know it's going to be bad out there, and y'all be careful. And after years of training, um, or I should say experience—not training, but experience—you kind of learn how to how to deal with this. And in almost every case, we've overestimated our abilities to cope with some of the extreme conditions. And so I think if uh, when we get to the recommendations i'm I'm really looking forward to hearing uh hearing that because I think that can go a long way to stopping this from being the most deadly catch. so with that, Mr. Chairman, I have no further questions and thank you Thank you and member Hammond.
2: Thank you uh, Mr. Barnum, can you uh Talk about how much a personal locator beacon is, roughly.
6: Yes, ma'am. Um, we found that roughly $300 will buy a GPS-equipped personal locator beacon.
2: Okay, great. Uh, and I I have a couple of questions. Well, at least one question that I always like to ask uh, our Director of Safety Recommendations and Communications, Ms. Hatchett. Um about uh, what happens after a board meeting with our recommendations. Once we adopt recommendations from my standpoint for board members and for the board in general, this is the first step in the process for uh, uh, bringing about change. So can you talk about uh, Ms. Hatchett, what happens after the board meeting with our recommendations?
9: Certainly, Member Harmony. uh Thank you for the question. Um, NTSB recommendations can prevent future accidents and save lives only if they're acted upon. Otherwise, they're just words on a piece of paper. So after the board meeting concludes, our work continues. In my office, the Office of Safety Recommendations, or SRC, as we like to call ourselves, we track and evaluate the responses to every NTSB recommendations that we issue to recipients. And we work with the board and the staff to make sure that we keep the pressure on to close these recommendations, because it's important for all the reasons um, that we've talked about here today. Um, We record the responses to the recommendations we issue. We track them. Um, Of course, we talk to Congress. Um, We'll be speaking to them about the issues um, and our recommendations um, today. And we evaluate each response that we receive from our recipients to determine whether or not they're actually acting upon our recommendations. Um, as part of that, um, we manage the agency's most wanted list. And I just want to pause there for a moment to explain why it's important for us to elevate these issues. Um, as demonstrated by the Scandies roads, this is an accident, a tragedy that could have been prevented. Improving fishing vessel safety is included on the most wanted list to bring attention to the safety issues we most want action on. Um, To amplify these issues and underscore our safety recommendations, I do want to point out that we are working with the Office of Marine Safety, who is planning for an October roundtable to make sure that our issues, our recommendations remain on the forefront and we keep pushing for the closure of those. So these are some of the things that the uh, safety, uh, Office of Safety recommendation does to work with all of you to ensure that we keep these issues on the forefront, uh, included in the dialogue of uh, what we need to see happen so that we can prevent these accidents from occurring in the future.
2: And I, th- I think, you know, I really appreciated what you said about the most wanted list because every once in a while I hear, why do you have a most wanted list? Uh, you know, why bother with a list? And I think, you know, when, when we issue recommendations over and over again to prevent tragedies, either uh, to prevent the tragedy itself or pre- prevent the loss of life, and I'm thinking, you know, personal locator beacons right now where we've issued recommendations in the past after El Faro, Um it, we don't have other, I mean, there, we do have dialogue ongoing with the Coast Guard, but this is one really great tool, the Most Wanted List, to keep that issue in the forefront, to to draw attention to the fact that we have issued this recommendation, these recommendations previously, and we need action to save lives. And this is a tool that allows that to happen, which is why we have a Most Wanted List. So Absolutely. I, I really appreciate uh, you talking about that, and I appreciate all the work of your staff and, of course, uh, uh, our offices, our modal offices as well. So thanks very much, and that concludes my questions. Thanks,
9: Member Hamidi.
0: Thank you, uh, Member Hamidi. And uh, uh, so we'll now go to Michael Graham. Member Graham.
3: Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I actually have no further questions. Thank
4: you very much. And uh, Member Chapman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I'll be quick. Uh, A quick uh, clarifying question for Mr. Barnum. This is with respect to load line certificates and the requirement that uh, a vehicle um, uh, have one issued. Uh, Is that determined? Is that requirement determined by the size of the vessel, the date of manufacture, or is that a function of, of both of those considerations?
6: yes thank you sir for that clarification yes it's the function of the size vessel needs to be 79 feet or more and the date of construction okay all right thank you um and
4: a couple of questions uh, uh, about personal locator beacons uh, where as as has been mentioned we're going to reiterate a recommendation of the coast guard today calling for a requirement that all uh personnel on certain commercial vessels be provided with a personal locator beacon. These appear to be relatively inobtrusive devices. Um, I understand that they're off the shelf. And you mentioned previously the the cost that seemed they're not inexpensive, but they're relatively affordable. Is there any resistance on the part of crew to wearing PLBs?
6: I believe that Whenever there's a, a new technology out like this, there's there's both sides of the coin. Um, I think traditionally, when crews are required to wear this working on deck, they might see some issues with with it hitting uh, as they're loading uh, some line of the crab pot or they're doing some other function on deck. But ultimately, from what we've heard from industry, is that they've embraced them and many people voluntarily have them. So maybe a little bit of work to be done here in terms of
4: educating uh, the the community of folks that are working on board these vessels, but uh, generally easy to obtain, affordable, relatively unobtrusive, and certainly the the benefit um, uh, outweighs uh, any any potential inconvenience in terms of wearing them. Uh, and a question, I think this one uh, really is is for Mr. Terrell. Um This will be my last question, Mr. Chairman. Uh, My understanding is while we're focusing today, of course, on the specifics of this tragedy, I understand that our Office of Marine Safety intends to develop a safety recommendation report addressing broader issues associated with fishing vessel safety. Are you able to share additional details regarding the scope and objectives of that work? Uh,
3: Yes, thank you, Member Chapman. Uh, The Office of Marine Safety will be developing a Safety Recommendation Report, drawing from previous accidents we've investigated, including the Scannies Rose, the Destination, and perhaps a half a dozen briefs we've done uh, since 2012 each year. Uh, So there's several dozen accidents we're looking at. Uh, The report will include an analysis of accident data. Many incidents that are investigated by the Coast Guard are below the threshold for the NTSB to investigate. So we'll look at all fishing vessel incidents, not just uh, majoring accidents, majoring uh, casualties. So we'll summarize the previous accident briefs. We'll find uh, look for safety gaps and propose safety recommendations to uh, perhaps close some of those gaps and and, uh, improve safety. Thank you very
4: much. We look forward to that. Congratulations to you and all of your team for an outstanding uh, job on this investigation. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. That's my last question.
0: Emma Chapman, thank you very much, uh, Mister Barnum. Did uh, did the two thousand nineteen stability assessment uh, accurately model all of the decks uh, on board the uh, decks and enclosure uh, on board the Scandies Rose? Uh,
6: one sir, one point uh, that was neglected on that uh, two thousand nineteen spilling instructions was the were the down flooding points of the vessel.
5: Yeah,
0: and did it uh, properly model the poop deck and the uh, fossil uh, area of the of the boat?
6: Uh, based off the MSC's technical forensic analysis of the stability instructions, no, sir, it did not uh, accurately model those two structures.
0: Thank you. What other? And you mentioned mathematical errors uh, in your opening presentation. What other error errors or omissions uh, did uh, did staff note in the 2019 stability uh, assessment?
6: So as previously previously mentioned uh, the instruction neglected down flooding, which is a major criteria on determining vessel stability. Um, other more specific mathematical errors errors I can't readily cite here but are mentioned in the MSC report
0: yeah thanks here's the uh, here's the ironic thing is that after the destination uh, marine casualty, uh, the owners of scandiess Rose. Uh, decided to update their stability instructions. And what they got was probably not what they paid for. Um, you know, they were trying to do the right things. And uh, there were ma- errors and omissions in that report. And I think that's a major point of this entire report. Um, Mr. Stolzenberg, you are a naval
6: architect. Uh, What does it take to be a naval architect? Good day, uh, Chairman. Uh, Typically, it involves a a four-year program at a university. Many folks go on to get a master's. Some get doctorates. Um, And if you so choose and a state has a professional licensing program, you can get a uh, professional engineer's license in the field as well in certain selected states, Washington State being one of them.
0: Thank you very much. It's not just something that you can mail off for. Or apply for on in the internet is a very extensive uh, qualification process. So uh, uh, and so anyway, we do know that there were errors and omissions in this one, and uh, and as a result of that, the captain of this vessel, the Scandies Rose, was not afforded the proper assessments that he needed to uh, make determinations about the uh, seaworthiness of this vessel. Um, now, overall. So we talked about the errors and emissions of the individual marine um, marine architect, or I'm sorry, naval architect. But let's talk about the regulatory aspects of it. And I guess, Mr. Barnum, this would be directed towards you. Um, do the current requirements for stability instructions consider icing accumulation on pot stacks and the interior webbing? Mm-hmm.
6: Yes, sir, Mr. Chairman. The uh, current regulations uh, do not account for icing on the interior webbing, but there is an allotment for uh, the exterior surfaces of the pot stack.
0: But it is assumed to be symmetrical icing, and we're learning and we know that icing does not occur symmetrically. Is that correct?
6: That is correct, sir.
0: And so how can the uh, regulatory requirements be changed to reflect uh, icing asymmetry and uh, and for um, icing in the interior, the webbing of the pots? How can that be changed?
6: Sir, as we, we mentioned in the draft report, we feel that a, a study needs to be conducted to accurately determine uh, exactly how these pots ice and how they can be treated and reference in regulation
0: yeah and that's certainly a recommendation that staff will be proffering and that we will be voting on shortly thank you and finally one one last question is uh should so the way that pots are are the um the way that the icing is modeled currently is like you said a a shoebox, um and so and we've learned that it gets in the interior webbing So that messes up the modeling on the shoebox. Should pots be tarped to allow for more symmetrical icing, uh, would that that, uh, do anything at all?
6: Yes, sir, Mr. Chairman. I I know NTSB has had uh, opinions on this in the past. And in certain circumstances, um, individuals in the industry have indicated that tarps will help prevent ice from accumulating inside the the pot stack. Obviously, the ice still accumulates on the tarp on the outside, um, but the majority of uh, commercial fishing vessel captains that we spoke to on this topic indicated that often the tarp is a more hindrance than it is is good in their opinion. Uh, there's dangers associated with uh, removing the tarp when it's time to fish. Uh, the tarps are traditionally ripped and ruined after they're they're done. it's a one-time use. so um, ultimately, there isn't a an easy solution here and there's not a, a general consensus either on the use of tarps
0: right thank you and i guess i guess ultimately what becomes of that would be what comes out of the study that we are recommending uh, in any event so all right um do any of my colleagues have any additional questions or comments before we move to the findings us uh, seeing none at this time uh Mr. Curtis, If you would please read the proposed findings.
5: Yes, sir. As a result of this investigation, staff proposes 13 findings. Number one, none of the following were safety issues for the accident voyage. One, the captain's pre-departure decision-making. Two, operational pressures. Three, fatigue. Four, drug and alcohol use. Five, the vessel's propulsion and steering systems, or six, the vessel's hull integrity. Number two, based on the voyage timeline and the estimated ice accumulation over that period, the Scandies Rose likely accumulated between six and 15 inches of ice on surfaces exposed to wind and icing during the accident voyage. Number three, although the captain's decision to proceed to Sutwick Island was reasonable, by the time he was close enough to turn into the lee, the icing conditions had accelerated and reduced the vessel's stability. Number four. The added weight from ice accumulating asymmetri- asymmetrically on the vessel and the stacked crab pots on deck raised the Scandies' rose center of gravity, reduced its stability, and contributing to the capsizing. Number five. Although the crew loaded the Scandies Rose per the stability instructions on board, the stability instructions were inaccurate. Therefore, the vessel did not meet regulatory stability rec- criteria and was more susceptible to capsizing. Number six. Because the stability instructions were inaccurate, the captain was unaware that his vessel did not meet the margin of safety intended to be provided by the stability regulations. Number seven. Current regulatory guidelines on calculating the effects of icing on a fishing vessel's stability do not take into account how ice actually accumulates on and in crab pots and crab pot stacks. Number eight, if vessel captains are aware of the amount of icing that is factored into their stability instructions, they would be better prepared to make critical vessel safety decisions when operating in areas of potential icing. Number nine. Formal stability training would provide fishing vessel crews with a better understanding of the principles and regulatory basis of stability, including the effect of icing. Number 10, an oversight program to review and audit stability instructions produced for uninspected commercial fishing vessels, like the Scandies Rose, that are not required to carry a load line certificate, could identify and reduce potential errors in stability instructions which in turn may reduce the chance that vessels are sailing without the intended margin of safety provided by applicable stability criteria. Number 11. Due to the limited surface observation resources near Sutwick Island and the Chignik Bay region along the fishing vessel route from Kodiak to Dutch Harbor, the National Weather Service cannot accurately forecast the most extreme localized wind and sea conditions for the area. Which can lead to vessels encountering conditions that are worse than expected. Number 12, the National Weather Service Ocean Prediction Center site could provide mariners with more detailed graphical icing information not currently available elsewhere, which would help them make decisions based on more accurate weather information. And number 13, personal locator beacons would aid in search and rescue operations by providing continuously. Updated and correct coordinates of crew members' location, sir. Mr. Curtis,
0: thank you very much for reading those recommendations. At this time, we'll have uh, each of our board members. Uh, we'll do a roll call to make sure that all board members are ready to deliberate. Vice Chairman lansberg
1: I'm ready to deliberate, uh, Mr. Chairman.
0: Thank you, Member Hamidi.
2: Thank you. Uh, look forward to the discussion.
0: Thank you, Member Graham.
3: I am ready to uh, deliberate, Mr. Chairman.
0: Thank you very much. And Member Chapman. Ready
4: to go, Mr. Chairman.
0: Thank you very much. Um, so uh, do we have a motion to adopt the findings as proposed? So moved. Okay. Vice Chairman uh, has moved. And is there a second?
4: I'll second, Mr. Chairman. And Mr. Uh,
0: Member Chapman seconds. Is there any discussion?
1: Um, Mr Chairman, uh, I did note I believe it was on finding eleven uh, the statement uh, the National Weather Service cannot accurately forecast, and I believe the term is the more extreme localized and I believe it was read most extreme localized a minor point, but uh just for for the
7: record,
0: yeah, thank you very much um. And uh, as it's written, it does say, as you pointed out, Vice Chairman does say, the National Weather Service cannot accurately forecast the more extreme localized wind and sea conditions for the area. So, thank you. Uh, Any, thank you. Any other comments or questions? Okay, it's been moved and seconded to adopt the findings as proposed. There's no further discussion. We'll do a roll call vote. Of Vice Chairman Landsberg. I vote aye, sir. Vice Chairman votes aye. Member Homity. Aye. Member Homity votes aye. Member Graham. Aye. Member Graham votes aye. Member Chapman. Aye. Member Chapman votes aye. The Chairman votes aye. The findings have been adopted unanimously. And now, Mr. Mr. Curtis, if you'll please read the proposed probable cause.
5: Certainly sir. Staff proposes the following probable cause. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of the capsizing and sinking of the commercial fishing vessel Scandies Rose was the inaccurate stability instructions for the vessel which resulted in a low margin of stability to resist capsizing combined with a heavy asymmetric ice accumulation on the vessel due to localized wind and sea conditions that were more extreme than forecasted during the accident voyage. Sir?
0: Mr. Curtis, thank you very much. Is there a motion to adopt the probable cause as presented? I so move. S- um, Member Homedy moves, and is there a second? Second. Member uh, Graham seconds. Uh, is there any discussion? Okay, thank you. It's been moved and seconded to adopt the probable cause as presented. There appears to be no discussion. Um all in favor, we shall begin again with a roll call vote. Vice Chairman Landsberg. Vice Chairman votes aye. Vice Chairman votes aye, Member Homity. Aye. Homity votes aye, Member Graham. Aye. Member Graham votes aye. Member chap Aye. Member Chapman votes aye. The chairman votes aye. The probable cause has been adopted unanimously. Now, as far as the recommendations are concerned, I believe Mr. Curtis will read recommendations one through seven for our consideration to vote. And after we voted on those, then uh, he will then read the recommendations uh, that are being reiterated uh, in the report, but will not require. A vote, and that's my understanding. Mr. Curtis, did I get that right?
5: That is right, sir.
0: Okay, if that's the case, then uh, Mr. Curtis, if you'll please read the proposed recommendations.
5: As a result of this investigation, staff proposes the following seven new safety recommendations for the U.S. Coast Guard. Number one, conduct a study to evaluate the effects of icing, including asymmetrical accumulation on crab pots and crab pot stacks and disseminate findings of the study to industry by means such as a safety alert. Number two, based on the findings of the study recommended in safety recommendation one, revise regulatory stability calculations for fishing vessels to account for the effects of icing, including asymmetrical accumulation on a crab pot or pot stack. Number three, revise Title 46, Code of Federal Regulations, 28.530, to require that stability instructions include the icing amounts used to calculate stability criteria. Number four, develop an oversight program to review the stability instructions of commercial fishing vessels, which are not required to possess a load line certificate, for accuracy and compliance with regulations. One recommendation to the North Pacific Fishing Vessel Owners Association. Number five. Notify your members, Perrin, Bering Sea, Aleutian Islands, Crabber's Fishing Vessel Fleet, close parent, of the specifics of this accident, the amount of ice assumed when developing stability instructions, and the dangers of icing. One recommendation to the National Weather to sorry, to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Number six. Increase the surface observation resources necessary for improved local forecasts for the Sutwick Island and Chignik Bay region in Alaska. And one to the National Weather Service. Number seven, make your Ocean Prediction Center freezing spray website operational and promote its use in the industry. Sir? Good. Thank you
0: very much. Um, So there are the recommendations. The new recommendations proposed. Is there a motion to adopt the recommendations as presented? So moved. My chairman moves. Is there a second? Second. Okay. Uh, Member Chapman seconds. Is it seconds the motion? Is there any discussion regarding recommendations one through seven? Seeing none. It's been moved and seconded to adopt the recommendations as presented. There appears to be no discussion for a vote. Vice Chairman Landsberg, what say you? Vice Chairman votes aye. Vice Chairman votes aye. Member Homedy. Aye. Member Homendy votes aye. Member Graham? Aye. Member Graham votes aye. Member Chapman? Aye. Member Chapman votes aye. The Chairman votes aye. The recommendations have been approved unanimously. Um, as presented. And so, Mr. Curtis, if you'd please read for the record the previously issued recommendations that are reiterated in this report.
5: Yes, sir. Staff proposes reiterating the following two safety recommendations, which are currently classified open, unacceptable response, both to the U.S. Coast Guard. First, M1124, which reads, Require all owners, masters, and chief engineers of commercial fishing industry vessels to receive training and demonstrate competency in vessel stability, watertight integrity, subdivision, and use of vessel stability information regardless of plans for implementing the other training provisions of the 2010 Coast Guard Authorization Act. And secondly, M1745 require that all personnel employed on vessels in coastal, Great Lakes, and ocean service be provided with a personal locator beacon to enhance their chances of survival. Sir?
0: Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, So those recommendations, of course, have already been adopted by the board, uh, by uh, a board. They've already been adopted. So uh, Mr. Curtis was simply reading those to get them on record that that is a part of the report. does anyone have any additional issues related to this report uh, that they wish to discuss? Seeing none, is there a motion to adopt the report as presented? I so move. Member Graham moves. Is there a second? Second. Vice Chairman Landsberg, seconds. Uh, it's been moved. Is there any is there any discussion regarding the final report? Okay, it's been moved and seconded the motion to adopt the report. Um, we have a motion that's been uh, seconded to approve the report as uh, presented. There appears to be no discussion. For a vote, Vice Chairman Landsberg. Vice Chairman votes aye. Vice Chairman votes aye. Member Homedy. Aye. Member Homedy votes aye. Member Graham. Aye.
4: Member Graham votes aye. Member Chapman. I and Mr. Chairman, before you proceed to your closing statement, a reminder to turn your camera on. Uh, my camera? Yes, sir.
0: You know, I'm, I'm, it's funny because my camera shows on now and it shows, it showed, let's see, when I tried to turn it off, it, um, you know, I can't. So just mark that up, chalk that up to technology. Um now I turn it off and I can't even turn it back on. So uh, while Brian was reading something a little while ago, my camera would not turn off. So anyway, that's just technology, but thank you for that. Um, so, um, and Vice Chairman, I think you, uh, I'm sorry, Member Chapman, you just voted uh, to approve the report as uh, presented. I believe you did. Yes, sir. And the Chairman votes aye. Uh, so the the final report for the Scandies Rose has been adopted unanimously. Um, do any of my colleagues on the board wish to file a concurring or dissenting statement? Okay, and for the record, uh, since no one can see me, uh, I do not wish to file a concurring or dissenting statement. So, um, anyway... Carl, uh, can you turn my camera back on? I don't think you can. It's grayed out completely on on my computer. But anyway, that's technology for us. Um, So I'll now move to the closing statement. And before we do that, I'll I'll welcome any participants to turn off their cameras and mics if they are so inclined. Um, In closing, I want to thank my colleagues on the board for their great preparation uh, going into the board meeting. Uh, all of, turned uh, kicked out, but maybe, uh, maybe I'm back anyway. Um, I want to thank, uh, all of my colleagues for, uh, good, uh, comments going into the board meeting when they, when they all met individually with staff. Uh, certainly appreciate the good questions, um, asked by staff. Uh, asked by the board members and the responses by staff. Uh, We always thank the investigative staff to the uh, staff of the Office of Marine Safety and the Office of Aviation Safety. Uh, Of course, the Office of Aviation Safety provided the uh, weather uh, expertise and the resources. But as I've always said, nothing around here gets done by just one person or one department. It is an entire uh, group effort. And this meeting is a great example. it takes an entire organization to conduct a board meeting. And uh, so a sincere thanks not only to the investigative staff, but to the program staff and the support staff um, to pull it all together. The Scandies Rose did not capsize and sink because of a crew member or the captain did not do their, their jobs or because the vessel had been poorly maintained. It sank because its captain only had partial access to the information that he needed to make the decision, and the information that he did have was inaccurate. The vessel was loaded according to the stability instructions that were not conservative enough. The captain set out to sea without the margin of safety required by the regulations because of these errors in the stability instructions. And the vessel met weather conditions that demanded very mm-hmm. much safety margin. The recommendations we issue today, if acted upon, would result in more accurate stability instructions that realistically consider the effects of icing on crab pots and crab pot stacks. They would also increase the surface weather observation resources necessary for improved weather forecast and they would result in the Ocean Prediction Center's freezing spray website becoming operational. The recommendations that we reiterated today would result in required vessel stability training for owners, masters, and chief engineers, as well as other training. They would also result in personal locator beacons for every member of a vessel's crew. Improved passenger and fishing vessel safety is on the NTSB's most wanted list of transportation safety, in part because commercial fishing is routinely one of the most dangerous occupations in America. But it doesn't need to be. The TV series The Deadliest Catch aired a special segment about Scandi's Rose, and in it, a fisherman asked, Have I been pushing my luck? for the past 40 years. Am I any different? I hope so, he said. But hope is not enough. The recommendations that the NTSB issued and reiterated today need not be acted upon to make tomorrow's catches. They need to be acted upon to make tomorrow's catches less deadly. On a personal note, this will be the last board member, board meeting that I will participate in, as tomorrow is my last day at the NTSB. It has been such an honor and privilege to serve with this agency. I will miss the people very much. I will miss the agency. Thank you. We stand adjourned.